So welcome to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate all of you for listening as always. Uh, today, we have a very special guest and Haley will introduce her, but we just want to thank everyone again for coming. And this is our now, is this our ninth episode, Haley? I have no idea, but we're, we're getting a lot put out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. And so without further ado, here's Haley. <laughs> Yes. So for the start of this podcast, before I intro our guest, Laura, for today, uh, we want to do a fun banter question. Yeah, I want to answer the last one because I know the answer. So. <laughs> what was it? What was, what was the that? question? The, um, what's the most important invention from oh, humankind? Yeah. It's refrigeration, for sure. That's a good answer. It's refrigeration. Ooh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one too, because I think back, you know, it's funny that you should mention that because refrigeration like has sort of come to my attention recently because my husband and I, we bought some land and we found on our land, a spring house. And I found out that before refrigeration was a thing, that's kind of what they use spring houses for because the water Mm -hmm. was so cool. So that was such a, like, I, yeah, I didn't even think of that. You think about it, right? I mean, lately, the big, you know, idea has been the vaccine, right? Without refrigeration, how would we all be getting the vaccine? But, um, but if you think about it, before we had refrigeration, you could only eat what you could grow or can, right? Um, so people's diets depended on where they lived. And I mean, an industry could only be in the North because you can't have Coca-Cola in Atlanta if you can't refrigerate things, if you can't run air conditioning. So it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. It really is a game changer. Well, so how should... did you guys meet then? So I actually did a co-op in, uh, in New York. Okay. And, uh, she was actually a, a temp at the beginning. And so now actually she's been working there for about two years. So that's fantastic. my co-op led up with her, um, temp work and yeah, we honestly, we hit it off in a month, best friends. I, you know, I've since changed co-ops and, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, we, we wanted to work again, again together. So that's, that's great. That's great. Podcast. So, yeah. And so the ba- banter question today is if you had a biography, what would the title be? Oh, wow. No, a yes. day in the life of a <laughs> <laughs> day in the life of Haley. <laughs> That's a tough question because you want it to be something really exciting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not every day is exciting. Maybe it, mine would be, so I have a very favorite quote. It's never too late to be what you might have been. So that's probably what my title would be. I like that. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Huh, what I about guess, you guys? I guess it does have to be an autobiography then, right? Because if it's a biography... Mm-hmm. It is too late. To be. <laughs> so, maybe true. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's like it's like you're thinking of someone of what like what someone yeah. else would write it as, like yeah. what someone would analyze your own life. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. That's how they true. would title it happened while after you passed. Exactly. That's yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know though. It'd probably be something like I don't know, quirky. <laughs> I feel like it would be a title that like maybe wouldn't make sense <laughs> until maybe you read it. Actually, I feel like I wrote a note on my phone like one day when I make a memoir, make this the title of your memoir. Don't ask why. This is something I think about. 
<laughs> oh yeah, maybe I don't have that. Never mind. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, maybe it would just be like, oh, I just don't even know. We can't even answer our own banter question. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you want to write it? Who would you want to write your biography? Cyra. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. If Cyra wrote my biography, she would be like, maybe we'll do each other's. Maybe we'll do each other's. Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. Okay. That would be cool. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this question for you then, Haley, and then maybe you could answer it for me. Um I I know. Life is a denim party. That that would be Haley's <laughs> biography title. Party. yeah that's a joke because i told her i want to have a party where everybody just wears all denim yeah very and 80s she very hated 80s. that idea she did hate that idea <laughs> i asked Haley what her perfect birthday was going to be like and she could have said anything in the world <laughs> and she she chose to say that a, yeah a full denim denim hat okay. denim everything yeah party so hmm. interesting party i like it sarah's Sarah's biography would be like the the day in the life of a girl that hates all of her cats but has four (laughs) (laughs) i do like that i know (laughs) i'm kidding you go no you go okay i'm Haley, and i'm sarah we love learning we love discovering And we love talking. Are we experts on literally everything? Absolutely not. But how will we learn if we never start the conversation? So we hope you'll join us for this literal journey. So for today's guest, I am very excited to introduce Laura Vesepka. I met Laura when she was working at my school, Kettering University, where she was the founding dean of the College of Sciences and Liberal Arts. I only had a few interactions with her, but I remember those interactions very well. She was incredibly nice and welcoming and very easy to talk to. Even though Laura was at Kettering for a short time, she definitely made an impact on students and faculty. I know personally, she motivated me to continue to look at the artistic side of STEM. Uh, Just knowing her artistic side and working as as the dean, I thought she would be a great addition to this podcast. However, after some good old LinkedIn stalking, uh, (laughs) I was very impressed to see all of Laura's extensive work as being a professor and a researcher. And so uh, there's definitely a lot to learn from her, and I'm very excited to hear her talk more about her life, her passions, and what she is doing now. Uh, So thank you so much, Laura, for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. And that was a very nice intro. (laughs) One thing Haley did not tell you is that the way we met is that she made an incredible artistic piece in a 3D printing class. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. And uh, it's this sculpture that when you look at it in certain directions, it looks, you know, it's crazy looking. It looks like a transformer or something. But when you shine the light on it just the right way, it looks like a pair of dancers where one dancer's lifting the other. And these pieces were in the Kettering Library on display for the class. And I just fell in love with this piece. And so I had to find out who made it, what, if I could buy it. No. Right? I'm sure she was like, what? <laughs> but I have that. It is actually in my office here because it goes everywhere with me. Even it was in Montana last year. Now it's back here. Um, and I've even tried to get this place where I'm working now to do a full-size version of it. 
in front of our building. So someday, oh, Haley, you never know. Wow. Because our wow. founder was actually a dancer. And I think it would be a fantastic addition to our building. So someday you might see that piece. <laughs> wow. Thank now, you so don't much, be Laura. asking for any thank major you. royalties or anything because no. we're a nonprofit. So, <laughs> Haley, you what? never. In the world, you never told me that. <laughs> Surprise. Oh. Yeah, I'll have to show you a picture, Syrah. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. It's fabulous. Yeah. It really well, thank is you. fabulous. Thank you, Laura. So, and it was perfect timing because um, when I was at Kettering, I was actually working with a group um, associated with the National Academies of Sciences, um, Engineering and Medicine, and we were working on a study that I was involved with probably for five or six years that was looking at um, the data behind whether there is a benefit to integrating STEM with the arts and humanities. And it was a fantastic group to be with. I mean, it was artists and writers and scientists and engineers. And we got together in Washington, D.C. like every other month. And the, the thing was, though, we were trying to collect data. And it wasn't just this, oh, everybody knows that your life is better if you have art and music in it and you're a scientist, or everybody knows that your life is better if you understand science. It was, can we measure the benefit associated with that? Is there a way to measure it? And there are some ways to measure it, which is the cool thing. We uh, published the report in 2018. Um, it's called Branches from the Same Tree. You can get it online at National Academies. And it gives a lot of different examples of ways um, schools have integrated that learning, both at the undergrad level and at the graduate level. Um, it turns out medical schools have done this integration the best, and a lot of our data came from that. But um, it was really the first time in my life where I was in with a group of people who really had this dual life like I did, um, where as Haley mentioned, my PhD is in organic chemistry. Um, that makes some people shudder, I think. Um, <laughs> some people smile. Um, my, but my undergrad degree was in English literature. And my dream was always to be a dancer, which is why I love that sculpture. And uh, yeah. I'd never really been with other people who, who had these two sides that seemed like they didn't connect. And to be able to meet other people like that was, was really pretty wonderful for me. So that's that, that statue kind of came around at a really, really special time, I think for me. Uh, so, but yeah, my, uh, it's, I was definitely not a STEM girl by birth for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I came to it much, much later. What did you start by doing? Um, did you, did you go to school for anything besides STEM to start off or I'm sorry if I missed that? No, you didn't. Um, so when I, I was, a, I'm a first gen college grad. So first person in my family to go to and to, actually not to go to, I, my mom went to college for like a semester and then dropped out. Um, so I was first gen and, you know, typical, I'm was typical first gen, right? I didn't know a thing about it. I didn't know what a credit was. I didn't know what a major was. I just went to college mm -hmm. and um, I loved literature. I loved to, to write I loved um, reading. I was into Shakespeare. I loved poetry. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to study English. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the Ohio State University, and that's what my plan was. Um, of course, you had to take some science. Um, and I liked chemistry a lot in high school, so it was natural that I would just sign up for chemistry. And I really, the thing about chemistry that's always intrigued me is the colors. 
Um, and as I went through just those first couple chemistry classes, I started to learn where that came from. And I was kind of hooked. Um, and I actually did a TEDx talk a while ago oh. on um, the liberal arts. And I told this little story about really what happened to me in college. And I'll tell a quick version of it here. Sure. I was really interested in, um, you know, when you're in your first science classes, you learn the colors of the rainbow, right? You learn mm -hmm. the spectrum. And of course, it's Roy G. Biv. Yeah. And I always wondered, like, why they threw indigo in there right? Because it mm -hmm. seems like it doesn't belong. You've got your three primaries and you have your three secondaries. And then there's this extra one thrown in, right? Like, why is it there? Mm -hmm. You've got red, yellow, and blue. You have green, orange, and purple. And then there's indigo. Oh, is it there for? So I, um, I asked my chemistry professor and he said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, but you know, not all physicists do throw it in there. And in fact, if you look at current textbooks, you won't see it anymore. Roy G. Biv has lost the eye now, which is, I think, kind of interesting, right? Interesting. So I kind of went on this hunt for indigo, right? Like, why indigo? And your first thought might be that it's, well, maybe your eye can discern the colors on that end of the spectrum better than the red end, right? Because obviously, they're very different wavelengths. They're the two opposite ends. But that's not true. You can actually discern better on the red end. So it can't be that. And then I thought, well, maybe it's because indigo is actually an important thing. Um, it's expensive. It's a dye. It used to be used as currency. It's in literature a lot. So they, they started to kind of connect. My two loves started to kind of connect. But here's why it is. And this is even more interesting. It's because of the musical scale. It's because Newton was a musician. And there are seven notes in the musical scale. So he wanted seven colors so that it matched the, the balance of the musical scale. That's why it's in there. And why indigo? I, that still is not my answer. Like, I still don't know why that. It tells you why there's an extra one. Right. But I still don't know why it's that one. I'm still hunting that one down. First of all, I know what your biography is going to be called. And it's going to be called <laughs> The Hunt for Indigo. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> actually, I love it. Not to get too deep so soon, but I it just made me think when you said that you went to your professor and he said he didn't know the answer to that. So being that you have background as a professor and such an influential person, first of all, I didn't even know we were talking to celebrity Haley TED Talks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're going to have to ask you for the link to that, too, yeah, because we would, love to, we would love to, uh, to highlight it in right. the description. So True. your professor background and your just influence in different ways background, what do you do when someone comes to you and you don't know? Okay, so I have the best answer for you. But the short answer is I, I just tell them that. And I, I say, you know what? I don't know, but I know where we can start looking because I do usually know where to start looking. Um, you know, I was just telling someone a story the other day that I remember being in grad school and asking a question of one of the postdocs in my lab. And he answered in a very, um, very sure sounding way. And I went and created a whole series of experiments based on his answer. And his answer was wrong. And I think he didn't know. And, and I just remember at that moment thinking I would never do that. Like if I didn't know, I was never going to tell people what I thought was true because they could plan 
a whole bunch of things based on something that was just a thought. Um, and so I have never done that to a student. Um, I, it, it actually turned out I was teaching a Gen Chem class pretty recently. <laughs> it's funny that this comes around. And one of my students was asking me about the octet rule. This is what the octet rule, right? I mean, you learn that in high school chemistry that, you know, atoms are happy when they have eight electrons around them. And that's how you build mm-hmm. compounds. And one of my students said, why is it eight? And I said, well, it's because then the shell is full. And he goes, well, why does that matter? And I go, oh, I said, well, you know, there's, we started to talk about, you know, electrostatic interactions. And he goes, but seriously, like, how did they know that? And why is it eight? And why would there not be 10? And how did they know? And I finally, I just stood back. I go, I don't know. And so we Googled it and all we could get is, well, cause eight is better. Like that's what we kept finding. Well, cause eight is better. <laughs> and I looked at the student and I said, I think the answer we're getting is it's good because it's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I know who's going to know this. And it was the same guy who told me he didn't know the Roy G. Biv. He was a super young professor when I was at Ohio state. I'm like, let's look at this guy up. So I looked him up. Indeed, he is still professoring. Um, I sent him a note that said, you don't remember me, but here's a story, blah, blah, blah. I'm a professor now. These are what my students are asking. I know you know the answer to this because you're a physical chemist. And he, he sent an answer back that pretty much said, it, it, he gave us a little description and then he pretty much said, and this is all quantum mechanics and it's pretty much way over everybody's head unless you study this. And I'm like, that's good enough for me, right? I'm an organic chemist. I don't do numbers. But yeah, I thought how cool that this person who was willing to tell me he didn't know was like kind of came back around and saved my butt a little bit when I was telling someone I didn't know. Right. Yeah. That's so awesome too, that you made that relationship that you could all those years later go back and then Mm -hmm. connect with him and ask him that. Yeah. One thing that's certainly true about faculty is 99% of us love our students. It's the only reason we do what we do. And when I hear from a student that they remember something from class or they saw something on TV and they remember when we talked about it or when I see, I mean, some of my students now are professors themselves. It's, it's like a proud mom, you know? So, so don't ever be afraid to reach out. They'll probably remember you. That's really cool. Like all all of the stuff that you're thinking about with, with your students. Like, I feel like I've had so many situations where I'm like afraid to say, I don't know to a question, but it's all I can think about. Or if it's something that's like something most people don't think about that they just learn because it was taught in their first chemistry class in school or any class in general. And like, it's like two plus two, like, how do we know that's two plus two? It's just because we learned it first grade. Yeah. Where, so, where are these things? I guess that's where proofs come in, right? That then once yeah. we find out, once we get to those class, then we're like, please don't tell us. Actually, I don't really want to know. too much information exactly not enough too much but I was hoping that you you would say something like that because I think there's like uh two scales two ends of the scales where you can make up an answer like that one young man did or you could say I don't know and then just dead end a student or dead end a person but it seems like you and the other professor that you reached out to have like okay well I don't know but here's some steps that we can take to find out it's true. I will say this. There are, there are good ways and bad ways to say, I don't know. And 
I will um, tell you both that I am a rabid supporter of making the playing field even for everybody in STEM, and that includes women. Um, I was definitely in the minority when I was studying chemistry back in the 80s. Um, that there are ways to say I don't know that that um, that reaffirm the fact that you are an intelligent person who knows a lot of things. And there are ways to say, I don't know that don't do that. And so I think it's, it's, it's fair in your answer to say, well, you know, I know, I mean, like with that octet rule question, it's saying to that student, well, I know that it has to do with electrostatic interactions. And I know it has to do with filling the shell, but that's the limit. And we should go investigate it further. Um, instead of just saying, I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I'm full of stories. You'll realize this. Um, the best story I can give you of that is I, when I was in graduate school, I remember taking a class. It was the hardest class I've ever taken. Um, and it was probably the only time in my life where a test got handed out and it was sitting in front of me. And I'm looking through this test thinking, am I in the right class? Because I don't even understand what this test is asking me. So I, I, I answered the things that I could, turned it in. I left a lot of it blank. And it's, I've never had that happen. And um, I talked to the professor and he was a fair guy, but kind of a scary guy. And, and he had an accent. He had this really thick Eastern European accent, which for some reason made him sound scarier to me <laughs> back then. And, um, and he said, Miss Smith, um, when you write nothing, I have to assume you know nothing. <laughs> and I was at the time, right, I was horrified. But in, since then, he was dead right right? If you don't say anything, if you don't write anything, that's the only assumption anybody can make is that you don't know anything. Hmm. So I think you have to be careful, right? Especially as a young, a young person kind of laying out your professional demeanor. Um, you walk this fine line between being honest and saying when you don't know something, but you need to make sure that you convince people that there's a lot that you do know, um, if that makes any sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's such a good point. Yeah. You mentioned that you really want to level the playing field and, you know, teach men and women equally, but we want to throw a curveball question in there. So do you feel like you consciously or subconsciously are more inclined to help women specifically succeed because you are a woman professor? Um, you know, obviously you still want to, help men succeed. Um, but do you feel like there's like almost like more of an incline to women? That's a good question. Um, I think almost any professor would tell you that they are as fair as they can possibly be. And I think it's not a lie, but we all have implicit bias, um, that moves in different directions that we're just not even aware of. I can tell you that um, early in my teaching career, I remember teaching an organic chemistry class where one student in the class wrote on my end of class evaluations that I favored the boys and another student wrote that I favored the girls. So I kind of felt at least it balanced out, right? Yeah. Um, the thing is though, perception is reality. And so if you're a student in the class and that's what you perceive, that's what you believe and it changes your experience. And so I think it's really important as a professor to not have any of those perceptions. But I also think it's important as a teacher to make sure that you create an inclusive classroom where um, one type of person isn't set up 
better than others to be successful. And that can be really hard to do for, you know, I think about an, an example that's not really classroom related, but it's a little more obvious to think about is, you know, you think about being in meetings and you might be in a meeting where someone says, you know, we're going to brainstorm ideas. And, and when you have a good idea, we want you to say it to the room. Well, what about all the introverts who wouldn't speak to a room like that if you give them a million dollars? So you're missing out on all kinds of really good ideas if that's the only way you're going to allow people to participate. And so I think the way I've learned to do that over time is to offer students multiple ways to share how they know what they know and, and how they're moving through the material so that no matter who you are, um, whether you're a male or a female or any other gender, whether you're young or old, no matter who you are, um, no matter your background, you feel like you have a safe and comfortable way to, to show that this is your level of understanding of the, of the material and the concepts that, that you're trying to learn. And, you know, for some people that is going to be speaking out in class, um, for some people, it is going to be taking a paper test. For some people, um, it's going to be one-on-one conversation. Um, and I think that's the best way. So is that a bias towards women? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, because I personally think our current education system, which still looks a lot like the 1300s, yeah. was set up for men to be successful. Right. So, um, sure. so yeah, it's, st- it's still biased. And so, yeah, any changes I can make to ma- not make it look like that are maybe moving the arrow more towards the middle if that does that answer no I think yeah I think I think it was it was kind of like a tough question to answer because because you don't want to show bias towards women you know you want to create that level playing absolute level playing field but because of maybe that lack that women perceive um in the classroom or at work or any of those places especially in STEM fields then maybe showing a little bit towards the women to help level that playing field is what you have to do. I think that, um, I think that you have to, um, you have to create the situations that you want that will lead to the um, outcomes that you want. If you want more women um, to be engaged in anything, you have to create a, um, an atmosphere where they, feel comfortable participating and learning and growing. And I think you could fill the blanking with anything. You can be women, men, you know, kids, grownups, you name it, right. Just fill in the blank and, and that's the answer. And, um, and then self-select for that, right. If that's the outcome you want, then you have to be thinking towards that. I think that's a good point. And actually something that Haley and I talk about a lot is that sometimes helping women succeed is, like if you're being a professor who is obviously very biased to women and so the the men or young men in your classes are perceiving you as not an ally or I don't know, however they're going to p- perceive you, then it almost makes it a more hostile environment for those, for the women that you want to help. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And the last thing you want to do is promote anyone who is not deserving of that moving forward, right? So um, if you're helping any student get through a class that where they're not actually kind of learning the material and they, and they really shouldn't be moving forward, all you're doing is a disservice to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that a student is prepared to do the next thing 
that's really always been my mantra as a professor is my job isn't to teach students a bunch of stuff. It's to get them ready to do the next great thing, um, whether it's take the next class, get the next job, whatever it is. Their job isn't to become an expert in my class. It's to do something better than that. And <laughs> if I don't prepare them to do that, I fail. I really like that perspective. I appreciate all your insight too, by the way. And I know Haley does as well. I feel like you have a lot of interesting things to say coming that comes from your experience in the school environment, but also in the workplace as well. I've done a lot of stuff. I mean, you, if, you, if you link and talk <laughs> yeah, to me, you yeah. probably saw, you're like, oh my gosh, she's like got a, had a million different jobs. Yep. Yeah, we, we I had to click the more. more. We yeah, <laughs> talked it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I went to your... Um, the website of the place that you work now. Okay. And so we talked about your transition from <laughs> liberal arts and English into chemistry. Now take us back from chemistry into art. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and where, where were the dance moves along the way? that's good well I do we do have a dance studio in this building which makes me very very happy not the least of which is we've got this great big gallery and when I'm the only one here at night there's all kinds of room to jump around but um (laughs) so I had um I think and and this is probably true with everyone so I was a professor forever I really loved professoring I will say when I went to Kettering when I met Haley and took that dean's job it was really the first position I ever had where I had moved almost hundred percent out of the classroom and into administration or frankly, it's management. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I did enjoy it. I thought that um, I really loved working with the Kettering faculty and students. They're really pretty special. And um, I thought that some of the changes I was able to do there, which was kind of integrating arts and humanities with STEM, I would be able to do on a larger scale. So, sorry, I actually spent last year as the president of a, um, they call it CEO out there, but I was president of a two-year school, a technical school out in Montana. And um, and because that was my goal. I was like, I'm going to be a college president. And so I did that for a while. Um, it was wonderful because I, I have a, a love in my heart for the two-year system. Um, I... I spent a good part of my teaching years in the two-year school here in Michigan. Um, I think it's one of the most important um, higher ed systems that we have in this country. And I was really happy to be at the helm and to make a difference there. Um, and I, what I, one of the things I've loved about the two-year system is I got to learn a lot of cool things. I know um, the last episode I listened to of your podcast, you had Amanda on. And, and I was smiling when she said that when people find out she's a welder, they ask if she does art because that's, I'm an art welder. That's all I do. And yeah. I always tell people when I say I'm a welder, they go, oh, and I go, well, I'm not a real welder because oh. the only place I would put my stuff is in somebody's garden because you would not want me fixing your things. But, um, but I, I learned that at the two-year school, right? How cool. But you know what? Being a college president was not, it turns out, not my dream job. Um, it was really far removed from the things I loved um, about being a professor, which was one-on-one with people, changing people's lives, um, helping them figure out how to change their own lives by, by the experiences I was able to give them. And I missed my family, honestly. So 
this place I am now was a place I'd come to a lot when, while I was living here in Midland. And I was surprised when I was home at Christmas to see that their um, director had uh, retired. And ultimately when I decided COVID hit and I said, I'm tired of being away from my family. I don't want something horrible to happen. And I wasn't there. So I decided I needed to come home. And I thought, why wouldn't I see if I could move into this role? And it turns out that, you know, running a nonprofit isn't all that different than running a community college, because frankly, that's also a nonprofit Um, Mm -hmm. and a nonprofit without a big budget, which is kind of what I have here. So, um, and I love art. And maybe the best thing about it is you don't necessarily want um, an artist running the arts nonprofit. Um, you probably want a business person running an arts nonprofit so that the artists can do their art thing. But you certainly want somebody who appreciates art and sees its value. And that would be me. Um, I don't call myself an artist, although I love to do art. Um, but I appreciate it. And I know what artists need. And I know what businesses need to be successful. So I think it's been a good match. Um, we've, we've pulled ourselves out of a really tough time with COVID. Um, and I think that I've been able to help do that. And I get to be surrounded by students again every day and art, beautiful art every day. And there's dance floor in the basement. So really it doesn't get much better than that. (laughs) I do miss organic chemistry. I'll tell you that, but not that much. (laughs) I have a little bit of a question jumping off of that too. Um, what, I mean, this is probably like a really in-depth topic but just in a nutshell what do artists need to be successful that's a good that's a really good question because I don't necessarily consider myself an artist and so I listen to what they tell me so all I can do is share with you what I know from talking to them they need space to safely create and I think that's true for all artists I think that in order to create you need to feel as though your environment supports your creativity. Now that's probably true for things other than artists, but it's definitely true for artists. Um, And what I think what creates, what, what defines a safe environment for creating is probably different for every person. Um, But it certainly means that you have the supplies that you need, that you have a supportive environment that is pushing you in a positive way, um, that you get um, constructive criticism from your peers, um, and that you kind of have that room to, to grow and experiment and try new things. Um, so, and, you know, we have artists here from, I mean, we have award-winning artists who teach our classes and display in our gallery. We have, you probably saw online, we have a program called Express Yourself Art Shop, where the classes have been designed so that everybody can be successful. And so we get quite a few adults who have disabilities who sign up for those classes. Those students are um, creating art that we sell in our online gallery um, and that they keep for themselves as well. Um, Some really incredibly talented people who, again, just need the right environment um, for that creativity to blossom. Artists aren't that different than scientists, you know? (laughs) Yeah. As a society, we tend to, and not just between art and science, but in a lot of things, we tend to focus on differences a lot. And if you think about, you know, what does the Venn diagram look like between an 
artist, what an artist cares about and what a scientist cares about. There's a ton of overlap in that Venn diagram. I mean, artists make things. So do scientists. They ask questions. So do scientists. They're curious. They observe. They think about form and function. They uh, have ideas. They design things, right? Maybe the difference is our scientists collect data and, and analyze it. Artists care a lot more about emotion, which is kind of a taboo in science. So, I mean, there are some differences, but most of the things are the same. Yeah, um, I think that's a good point that there is a lot of overlap because even just thinking about like reactions and data. I mean, a good artist knows how to blend colors. Someone just stepping up to the plate doesn't necessarily know what this type of blue is going to do with this kind of yellow. And But an artist knows that. And those are chemical reactions that are happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that actually kind of leads us into our, our next question. Um, we wanted to ask you, why do you think it's important to include the A into the stem, like make it steam? Uh, but basically include art into, sci- into science, like to group yeah. it into that. Category. Do you think it's important? And if you do, then yeah, why? Yeah, I do. And I would, my answer to you would be that um, we're actually the ones that ripped it out. And so we're not putting it in, we're putting it back in. Um, if you go back to the Renaissance, um, every, every artist was a scientist and every scientist was an artist. I mean, you know, someone like Da Vinci is one of your best examples. Yeah. You've pro- I don't know how much you guys care about the history of science. Some people care, some don't. But most people believe that Galileo was the first scientist because he's the first to use the scientific method um, to answer questions. But I actually don't think that's true. I think it was probably Da Vinci because he kept notebooks and collected data and synthesized data. He maybe didn't ask the same kinds of questions that Galileo did, but Da Vinci would call, he would have told you he was an artist, but you know, he, he tried to invent a flying machine. He studied anatomy so that his figures would look correct. He studied expression and emotion. And that's why we love the Mona Lisa. Um, he believed that, um, that writing and, and, um, grammar and rhetoric and, and geometry were just as important as painting. Um, it wasn't until maybe the, you know, 1800s that we got this idea that we needed to chop everything up into separate little boxes and you had to pick which box you were going to live in for the rest of your life. So I think when we talk about steam, in fact, when I did that group with the academies, we, we finally called it ah STEM because it was AH arts and humanities with STEM <laughs> Ah, STEM. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I think we were talking about like re, I've always used the term reintegrating them. We ripped them apart. I think that when, again, you know, I'll I'll go back to your conversation that you had with Amanda, right? I mean, she talked a lot about the chemistry behind welding and the metallurgy behind welding and, and the design work that happens. And and, and both of you know how, how beautiful the bead looks when you, when you get it right. And I mean, that's art. That is art, whether you've done it for that reason or not. There's this feeling you have and this beauty associated with it that, that means nothing to science, right? Science, science isn't trying to be beautiful, but it is. And so it's already there. The art piece is already there. It's just a matter of whether you're focusing on it or not. I started to be a chemist because of the colors. 
I didn't understand why copper compounds could be purple or green or blue or red and just these stunning colors. It's beautiful. And it's just a matter of whether you're paying attention to it or not. So, you know, does everybody care about them equally? No. But there's this tendency that we have that you somehow have to pick this thing. And um, you may be surprised, and I may be opening a big can of worms here. Um, I think um, it's science that has messed this up. I think science booted the A out. Um, and, and science needs to pull the A back in for a lot of reasons, but science booted it out. They booted the A and the H out. So, so what do you think about this? Because honestly, in like a stereotypical sense, you have more males going towards science and more females going to art. And and that's just in like a stereotypical, I know that's, you know, a lot different now, but I wonder if that had anything to do with it. What do you think about that? Like, like kind of like those men and women roles came first. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And it, I mean, it, it does even go back to the idea of, I mean, you said it, Syrah, when an artist is blending materials and colors to get a certain look, they're doing chemistry, but we don't call it that. But what if we did? Mm-hmm. Well, now you've got more women chemists, don't you? Right. Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, what do you define as a, as a, yeah. as a chemist or as a metallurgist or as a engineer or as a, right. Um, yeah. I think architecture is a really interesting notion because what, what is it? Is it art or is it engineering? Yeah, we, we actually had that conversation when Haley and I were talking about things that we had wanted to be when we grew up. And that was my dream as a kid was I wanted to be an architect. And we yeah. struggled. We were like, is this a STEM thing or is this an art or is it STEAM? And yeah. It's and both. It, it's so funny too. Um, I don't even know why it didn't even like make the connection in my mind, but exactly what you're saying about da vinci i was watching um a couple ted talks the other day so i like binge ted talks sometimes and (laughs) the ones that i saw just yesterday oh and i can't remember exactly what they were talking about but there were these two guys and they both had art abilities one was primarily an artist and the other one i believe was primarily a scientist but they they both did art and they were doing ink blots to 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 detect the shape of the brain and the only way they could do it was because uh the brain was so spongy and like fall apart back in the day before they like could use the liquid nitrogen to keep it you know in one piece and stuff like that they had to stain it and then blot it so they could see and i i that didn't even cross my mind that they're literally doing art to to make innovations in science so it's true. That's and cool. it's yeah. when I had a chance a couple of summers ago to um, spend some time in Florence and there's this um, museum dedicated to Galileo. And w- what you would be amazed at is how it's like filled to the brim with scientific instruments like telescopes, for example. And they are some of the most beautiful things you will ever see in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, gold gilded and enameled and I mean, the kinds of things that you would hang on your wall because they're these beautiful works of art, because why not, right? Why not have a telescope that's beautiful, right? Why not have a scale in your house that um, is so amazingly beautiful that you would leave it in the middle of the table? We somehow decided that that it, if it's functional, it can't be pretty. And if it's pretty, it can't be functional, right? 
it's sad, really. Um, but it opens up all of these wonderful opportunities to pull things back together again. And I do think it's not stereotypical to, I think, you know, talk about, you know, men in science or women who go into design or the arts. Um, I do think that you are onto something with this idea that part of the um, definitions and part of the problem we've created where there aren't enough women in STEM is because we've defined STEM in a way that is exclusive mm -hmm. to certain people. Um, and to get away from that, to move back in the other direction, we're going to have to redefine what it means to do science. Yeah, I really, I really liked all, you, all the things you had to say. I think we're going to have to because on our podcast, we have like ladies in STEM. We're going to have to change everything to STEEAM. <laughs> there you me. go. I would no. love it if you did We're that. We're part of the problem. <laughs> <We're> part of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, I think that's great. I think, I think that helps also encourage women that they don't have to stay in that box, um, in that STEM box. Like, I, I, well, I was thinking about this too, Syra. I forgot to mention that um Laura when she was at Kettering someone had started an art club at school and she was also I'm pretty sure you were the advisor of the art club yeah, at the yeah. beginning yeah it was a huge club well it was a kind of a big deal it was the young woman that came to to start it I remember thinking what are you thinking there's gonna be like me and you there and that's gonna be it. <laughs> and yeah. um and the first night we were at the library and we probably had 20 people show up we started to do art journaling and it just got bigger and bigger and we outgrew our space and we had to move up to the top floor, one of the buildings. And it was huge. And I think it's because, and of course, because Kettering's 80% guys, it ended up being mostly guys. Um, right. But I think that, I mean, you didn't have to convince them that there's a therapeutic um, feel to, uh, to being able to move into your expressive side, your emotional side, your, you know, beauty side and mm -hmm. spend some time there because especially when you're in an engineering school, you don't spend any time there. Um, yeah. So I think people were really enjoying spending a couple hours a week, just living in a place that didn't require them to calculate or mm -hmm. make decisions based on facts or anything like that. I think it was nice to see, to see all, oh, and actually there were a, a, a decent amount of guys started to show up at the club as well. But I think it was nice to see that community of women not only love like engineering, but also love art. It was nice to see like everyone come together and find a love for both. And yes. even here, a lot of a lot of girls talk about like, yeah, like I, I really love art, actually. Like, you know, I you know, I do like science, but it's you know, it's it's the integration that I love. Like, I think a lot appreciate that creativity that comes with, um, a major in a STEM field. Well, and there's so many cool options when, uh, you know, we get a lot of things donated because we're a nonprofit and someone donated this little kiln to us that I'm pretty sure is an enameling kiln, but it's old. And so I'm like, oh, I got to get this thing up and running and see what I can do with it. Is it gonna, right. I mean, I think there's going to be some really fun stuff we can do with it. And so I think it's been sitting in our basement forever because nobody really knew how to rewire it. So um, I think that having the blend is a helpful thing. So I'm curious to know, I'm going to ask the question now. Ooh. So <laughs> I did mention a little earlier and said I was going to open a can of worms that I think that science and engineering has been really the exclusive party here. And the reason I believe that is that I think it's, I think science is very elitist. 
Um, I think there's a feeling in science that you're either in or you're out. Um, and I first realized it when, you know, people ask you, and that probably happens to, to both of you as well. People ask you what you're studying or what you do. And if you say, oh, I'm a mechanical engineer or oh, I'm a this, they go, oh, wow, you must be really smart. Yeah. But if you had said I'm a history major, they never would have said that. So why is that? Um, yeah. why, why do you get the response if you're a science person? Well, because we've made it that way. Well, you know, we're better at math and other people don't know math. And if you can't do calculus, you can't be in our club. And if you, you know, don't pass all these really hard academic hurdles, we're not going to call you this. And, and I think we've just built this really big wall that says you're either on our, you're either in the science club or you're not. And so, you know, saying that, saying, oh, I'm really interested in why these compounds are different colors or why when I mix these two pencil colors together, they turn purple. The scientists of the world would say, well, that's not science, mm-hmm. even though we totally know it's science. Right. Um, that's such a good point. Um, mm-hmm. Haley and I actually ponder this a lot, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like we talk about this. <laughs> yeah, because I think this comes from such a deeper place than STEM or academia i think and this is just my opinion and this might be provocative but i think this comes from the the deep place of having social or intelligence hierarchies and i think that if you are making it so that someone is below you then you're not on the bottom and we talk about this because a lot of engineering schools and technology schools for lack of a better word, from my perspective, do hazing. They make things really difficult. And they, because it's this, I want this exclusivity. I want to make sure nobody gets into this club. And I think that's a human tendency, not just a scientist tendency or, um, and yeah. And I think uh, the reason it comes out so prominently in the science and engineering fields, and this, again, this is just my speculation, is because, let's use history, for example. Uh, in science and in engineering, sometimes those things are a little bit more measurable. Like, can I show someone that I built this thing or that I solved this math problem? And maybe people can think of examples to refute what I'm saying. But I feel like maybe being really good at history is something that's a little bit hard to measure. Maybe you could quote things or but but people can look at it and say, well, how how is that really going to benefit someone else? Or how how does your being able to memorize that stuff changing the world? But but it can. And and knowing things about where we've come from as people, those are important things, too. And so I think that's where it comes from is this human problem of. I want to make things exclusive because then that way I'm in the club or I want to push people down because then that way I'm not on the bottom. That's an interesting idea. It's a Um, perspective, but. (laughs) No, I don't think so. It's, I think it's maybe a pragmatic perspective. There was a famous um, quote once that said that, you know, the ways there's two ways to feel bigger. One is to grow and the other is to push somebody else down. Right. Um, Um, And so it's certainly easier to push somebody down and out of your way than to grow. Um, But I also think you did hit a little bit on something I think is important, Syra, which is, you know, how scientists come to their truth is very different than how humanists come to their truth. And as someone who studied literature, I know this, this 
and was probably one of the most complicated things when I was in college is, is understanding how you get to truth um, in one discipline versus the other. I mean, in science and engineering, you come to your truth by collecting data and analyzing it. And you understand that you never can um, prove anything that you can only disprove, um, come up with data that supports a claim, but that um, it's, um, you know, a constant search for more information that builds up your story. But rhetoric is how you come to your truth in the humanities. And it isn't about collecting data and analyzing it. It's about how you interpret and how you um, synthesize things together, and then how you create a new idea, which is now defined as a new truth based on that. And I mean, science is, we measure things in science. You don't measure things as a humanist. Um, and, and so I don't think they don't trust each other. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times a while ago where um, a humanist said that humanists do the scientific method all the time. Scientists aren't special. Everybody does it. And I read it and thought, you are so wrong. Um, don't degrade yourself because the scientific method's cool and really important and amazing, but it isn't the only way to get to truth. And in fact, it's, it's, it gets to like the core of why you can have religion and science at the same time, because they are not the same truths. Um, if, if everything had to come to truth the same way, this world would be incredibly dull incredibly dull (laughs) yeah can you measure love can you measure music can you measure yeah Hmm. one of my favorite things in the world unfortunately it's not funded very well anymore is there's one of the world's most important observatories is actually in the vatican and so it's priests Mm -hmm. who are doing astronomy and discovering new stars and planets and um and someone asked one of the um one of the priests who ran the Vatican Observatory, how can you be a scientist? He was a PhD astronomist. How can you be a scientist and be a man of God? And he said, well, how can you not? He said, every day I discover new things about this world and realize how much I don't know. And it strengthens my faith. And I thought that was beautiful because it's really saying there's two kinds of truths in this world and they are not dependent on each other, but they certainly coexist. Right. They can. And they almost they almost have to. They almost depend on each other in, a, in the sense that, like, for example, what you're saying about the priest, where you look at something like that and you can't necessarily prove certain things. And this is a controversial thing. Maybe I'm saying but you can't cer- necessarily prove certain things 100 percent with the scientific method. So you do have to leave room for things because you you're not able to say without a shadow of a doubt, this is what it is. I mean, that's the, I mean, the definition of the scientific method is there is no proved, right? It's, um, it's, you generate data in support of, you can disprove, right? right? You create a hypothesis and you either support it or you disprove it. You never prove it. You can create a body of, of support that is so great and so hard to poke a hole into that now all of a sudden we have a law, right? right. Um, or, but it's, you know, we never have proof. Um, it's, we're a lot more similar than you think. I think in those to, to faith type things, we just, faith doesn't require any data, right? Science is using data. So. Should it be awesome? Um, 
<laughs> no, no. And you know why? Because I, and this is totally my opinion, a hundred percent. I think faith is special. Um, and I would not consider myself a, an extremely strong person of faith. Um, I certainly was, you know, raised in the Christian church and, um, and I, I'm a semi-practicing Christian right now. Um, if you, we could get into a million podcasts about what I believe. <laughs> yeah. Different podcasts. different. Right. <laughs> but, um, but I think faith is very special because by its very nature, it says you don't need any data. You just believe. And that's cool in and of itself, right? So here now you have three ways of coming to the truth. One is through data analysis, one is through rhetoric, and one is through sheer belief, right? I know this to be true because I know this to be true. It's an interesting triumvirate of ways of knowing. I know we had a, we I know we had a question, but I actually stumbled upon the question of if you could measure something that wasn't visible, what what would you pick to measure? I guess an example could be like love. Like I, if I want to measure love, but how would you, how would you, if that was your choice, Haley, how would you, so I'm thinking along the lines of right now in school, we're doing PLC programming and you have this code in the background and then you have like an HMI screen that allows you to see kind of the interface of what's going on in the code. Mm. If I have data running in the background and I have a counter that's counting boxes or something, then I see on the screen one box, two box, three boxes, ten boxes have gone by. So if you could measure love, if that that was the code in the background, hmm. what is the interface? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Like, how would you? Uh, what would you I would probably just use a thermometer. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a, like a love, love, love monitor. monitor. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It sounds like something from an 80s game show, yeah. Haley. <laughs> thank you. Thank you and welcome to love monitor. Yeah. You're love yeah. safe and the thermometer goes all the way up. Yeah. Huh. What would you guys measure? I would love to have a way to measure, um, maybe like confidence, because if you could measure confidence, imagine if you could be like, have, you know, a confidence meter on you. Like some people have a blood glucose meter, right. And you could know when your confidence was dipping and you could kind of recorrect, right. And go, no, no, no. Right. Boy, it back up and, and strap it back on and get in there. Right. Yeah. Um, Go check almost like a, something you could watch. And it would be interesting to be able to see what, to watch it's, when it ebbs and like what types of things cause it to peak and what kinds of things cause it to ebb. That's so interesting because that's kind of when I actually started thinking about it right before you spoke, that's where my mind went to was like something internal, but I'm, I'm wondering if I could do something that's like internal, but also related to other people. Like yours is kind of related to situations maybe in, in other people as well. But I wonder if I could do something where like, if I've hurt someone's feelings, then I could see that. And so it would allow me to hopefully not hurt their, continue to hurt their I like that. I like yeah. that a lot. That would be cool. Haley, I, I do still think that we could sneak this question in here. Do you want to? Yeah, no, let's, let's still do it. Let's still okay. do it. So Laura, we at the last podcast company <laughs> take our fun very seriously. 
<laughs> so our very serious, uh, totally fun question today. Uh, what two totally normal things become really weird if you do them back to back? Here, I'll, a thinker. I'll, I'll send it in the chat so that we can all ponder it. Yeah. It is a thinker. We like the thinkers that are ridiculous. Two normal things, but if you did them one right after the other, now they would be weird. Yeah. Huh. I can only kind of think of like a lame one. Let's hear it. But it's like, oh, like if you brush your teeth, but then you eat like. That's what I was thinking. Too. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> brush your teeth and then you drink orange juice right after. Like that's. Have you guys done that? That's like the worst. Thing. I know it's the worst thing, but that's not like, I guess it's not weird. Yeah. It's just like. Yeah. I mean, I think I can only think of things that are just like backwards. Like I'm trying to think of like normal things you do during the day. I'm like, well, you, you put the, the risk of being gross. You take your pants down and then you go to the bathroom. And if you like, <laughs> like if you tried to like reverse those, or if you did, some, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to think of things you normally do every day. And like, yeah. like that maybe don't like, maybe it's take your pants down and brush your teeth or I don't know. Right. It's, <laughs> That would be weird, but yeah, it's huh. um, a weird one. Yeah, but I did think of teeth brushing, and okay, I actually thought of the opposite order though. I thought like eating a big mouthful of peanut butter and then like immediately brushing oh. your teeth, right? <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. Huh. I don't know. Huh. Oh, how about like if you uh washed your laundry and then you folded it before drying it so it's okay to do those things separately with steps in between but mm. yeah, back to back fair enough okay. but it works right it works it works <laughs> just sopping wet folded laundry <laughs> well maybe you know some of the best examples are maybe things where you should have done something in between and you didn't do them like that one right, right. where mm-hmm. i'm thinking about the time i put a big a big ceramic bowl of berries on top of my car and then drove away with the berries on top of my car. Yeah. And unlike the commercial right now, they went flying off the back of my car and exploded behind the car. So <laughs> probably yeah. putting the berries in the car would have been a good thing. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. We're not graduates yet, but if we had to, to give our opinions, we would say yeah. <laughs> our scientific opinion. Good. That's good. <laughs> uh, well, great. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, Well, that wraps up today's episode. And a big, very, very big thanks for Laura for coming on. It was really great talking to you, Laura, and learning more about you um, besides what we stalked on your uh, social (laughs) pages. (laughs) Um, Well, this was super fun. Thank you. And I think you just continue to show Haley and I that I'm telling you, we went into this podcast thinking like, and, and not in like a bad way or an arrogant way, but we thought like we're going to teach so many people so many things and we're going to learn mm-hmm. things obviously along the way. But I think you just continue to show um, Haley and I that we can learn so much more than we ever considered from doing the podcast. And you just had such eye opening and ear opening insight, um, reminding us that science is more than just hard research and data in a lab and that science is on a canvas and in sculpture and yeah, so we just really are very happy to have you. And 
thanks for our listeners for always faithfully supporting our podcast during its infancy. We appreciate every one of you. And Haley and I have been very encouraged to hear some of the feedback that you guys have been leaving us. So thank you all. Haley? Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thank you again, Laura, for, for coming on the podcast. It was um, my pleasure. Really glad to have you. You guys are doing a great job. Um, I think I can tell that you love learning and that's why this is so good um, because you go into it w- pl- with a plan, but open to moving in different directions. Mm-hmm. And th- I, like I said, I've listened to the episodes and I, I, <laughs> my family lets me cause I do not listen to podcasts. My <laughs> husband and son constantly 24 seven, they're listening to something. I'm like, yeah, I'd like to learn things different ways but I was hooked. I listened to you guys and Malcolm Gladwell. That's about it. So (laughs) that means a lot. Thank you for listening to all of them. It does. It definitely does feel good to have that feedback. And, And we, and we, and we do love learning. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.